0: been going through in this Advent series and considering the light of the gospel and how Jesus comes to break in. This morning, as we think about light, I want to ask you one question. How is it that you come to believe? For a lot of people, and for many days and times, people thought that if you just had enough evidence, if you presented enough facts that he could simply overcome the barriers to unbelief as though it was just a mere rational process. That if you could just present people with enough facts, if you could overcome their objections, if you could deal with their doubts, all of the reasons for unbelief could vanish. And yet what we know is that people have all sorts of information at their fingertips and they can Discern truths and they can understand all sorts of facts, and they can still not believe that evidence and reason are not enough. We ought to know that there is something about how the brain works that means that just mere evidence isn't sufficient for salvation. We know that the brain functions in a bizarre way at times, and as you get older, you realize that when you go from one room to another and you go, why did I come here? Or have you ever had that moment where that word, it's right there, but your brain just can't seem to remember what it is? You're thinking and it's like, uh, it's just you're putting all this energy into your cranium, just trying to get your cranium to connect with your tongue to get that word out and, uh, I just can't remember. Or you have those moments where you just think, well, if I just sit here and I'll just carry on, eventually it'll come back to me. And sure enough, after a little while, bang, out of nowhere, someone says something and it just triggers a thought in your brain and all your neurons are firing and that, oh yes, I remember exactly what it was that I was thinking about. We've all had that experience, haven't we? We know that it's not just enough to have rational ideas and to have evidence and facts, that there are things that come to us that um, Oprah Winfrey has called it your aha moment. That aha moment, actually Webster's Dictionary, has defined the aha moment as that moment of inspiration or the moment of illumination. It's that moment when suddenly things that, that have been in your brain, all are connecting. There's, there's dots that are just being brought together. That suddenly you see something in, entirely, in an entirely different way. Now, if that's true in terms of how little things can affect us, those aha moments where we have a dawning of realization, that's just a small example of how God works to bring about faith in the hearts and lives of people. That yes, evidence and knowledge and information, it's all important to to know the facts of the truth of who Jesus Christ is, but God has to do something far more than just give us information, which is why he has given us his very own son. Paul's description in 2 Corinthians 4, specifically in verses 4 and 6, describe what belief is like. How do you become a Christian? And it was really rooted out of Paul's own experience of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That Paul had come to faith in a dramatic fashion when he had encountered the risen Lord. And for this reason, Paul says in verse 1 that he doesn't lose hope. That he's not despairing, that he doesn't give up. And why is this? Because he is confident that the spiritual dynamics, what we're talking about here this morning, are the spiritual dynamics of how the brain works. The spiritual dynamics of how belief happens is that the the gospel will prevail because of how God works. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to take, I don't want to look at the brain in terms of neuroscience. That's not my specialty at all. What I want to do is I want to look in terms of how is it that we come to believe? And when we believe, what is it that God is doing? So I want to ask two questions this morning. The first question is, why is it that people don't believe? And then we'll ask the question, why do people believe in the gospel? Why is it that people don't believe the gospel? Paul gives reason here as to why he isn't discouraged that there are many people that he speaks to many people that he talks about with regards to the gospel and many who do not believe. But he says, this is the ministry that we have received, he says in verse 1, and we've received this ministry by the mercy of God, that Paul, someone who did not deserve to be a Christian, was a Christian. And the reason that he did not lose heart is it's rooted back in chapter 3, verse 18, that he has this confidence of the Spirit of God who is at work to change from one degree of glory to another. And so Paul can renounce shameful and underhanded ways, and that he doesn't have to manipulate people to believe, but that by the sheer open testimony of the truth by speaking just simply and plainly, not even in a fancy way, not even with great oratory skills, Paul has confidence that the gospel will work in people's hearts and lives because of the Spirit of God. But there are three reasons in verse 4 that he gives as to why people don't believe. The first is he says that there is the God of this age. You see that at the beginning of verse 4? He says in verse 4, In their case, so back in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, we'll come back to that word veiled in a moment, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This phrase that Paul uses to describe the evil one, Satan, is the God of this Well, in some translations it will say the God of this world, like mine does. Literally, it's the God of this age. In other words, that the devil, as Paul will refer to him in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4 of this book, he's masquerading as an angel of light. He looks as though he presents the truth. And yet he is one who is deceiving people, and the way that he deceives is in a limited fashion. That's why Paul calls him the God of this age. He has limits, that he is not of the age to come. He's of this age. And so his power and his authority has been limited by God. The reality is that what we're dealing with is not, as so many people view uh, the battle of belief, it's, it's not as though God is sitting on one shoulder and an angel, the devil, uh, the dark angel is sitting on the other shoulder and that you're battling it out in your mind as though you've got to rationalize, as though there's this battle between two equal partners. That's sometimes how this image of belief is presented or the idea of temptation is presented as though there's two equal powers and both are speaking into your voice and it's it's 50-50 and who, who is going to win? It's going to be who you decide, who you decide to follow. But that's not the kind of power that Satan has. In fact, the power that Satan has here is described as the God of this age He's a god who is limited. He is—he is one. He's no god at all, in fact. But Paul is using this language to paint a picture of one who is limited in terms of his influence. He is not an equal with God, and as a result of that, Paul is confident that because Satan's power is limited to this age, not to the age to come, that the gospel, which is of the age to come, which has already broken into this world, is going to prevail. And so that's the first reason that Paul gives, is that this, there is the God of this age. And that's one of the reasons why people don't believe. The second thing is, why don't people believe? It's what the God of this age does, is He blinds. But do you notice what He blinds? He doesn't blind eyes. You see that in verse 4? What does He blind? Minds. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What you would expect is that people would be blinded in their eyes because when you're blind, you're not able to see. But what Paul says is that the the ability to see actually doesn't come from these two pieces on the front of your face, but it actually comes from what's inside of your head. It's it's that the eyes of your heart, he will tell the Ephesians, uh, they need to be enlightened. And as a result of that, what Satan is doing is he is... Defe- he is deceiving and he is confusing. And by deceiving and by confusing, people cannot handle what God is doing. They don't have the comprehension. Their minds can't make sense. They need information. They need knowledge. Because what Paul will say is that the third reason that people don't believe is that they can't see the glory of God, which is the image of Christ. And so, the mind is blind from seeing. The mind is unable to see. And this all goes back to what Paul has talked about, that if the gospel is veiled, back in verse 3. Now, what is this language of veiling? In this language of veiling, Paul is actually picking up from what he was arguing in chapter 3, where he was talking about how when Moses had gone to meet with the Lord, Israel had just Had just received the Ten Commandments. Moses had gone up on the mountain, received the Ten Commandments. He had come down, and when he came down, he found Israel already breaking most of the commandments. They were worshiping other gods, they were making an image after other gods. Their practices were detestable, and they were following the ways of the nations. And as Moses came down, he broke the covenant. And as he returned and as he pleaded with the Lord, he would go up and he would meet with God. And we are told in Exodus 34 verse 35 that when Moses came down and as he came to the people, that his face had this radiance that it shone. And as it shone, the people were terrified. And the terror that was bring that was brought to the people was that Moses had been with God and by being with God that these people recognized that they had not and they couldn't handle Moses in all of the glory that was radiating off of his face from being with God it wasn't that Moses had glory but that Moses had received the glory of the covenant promises of God and in receiving these covenant promises Israel couldn't handle it because of their sin And their disobedience. And so as a result, the people who had worshipped an idol could not even stand one who had been in the presence of God. And so Moses uh, Moses had become this, this figure, as Paul understands it, as to why people reject the good news. And he says, if our gospel is veiled. So if the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ... And in, in giving mercy and grace to sinners, of whom Paul will say, and to, to Timothy, of whom I am the foremost of sinners. If God's mercy and grace and forgiveness is veiled, it's not because there is a problem with the gospel. There is no problem, Paul says, with the message that he proclaims. The problem Is that there is a God of this age who is blinding minds of unbelievers so they do not see the glory of God who is the image of Christ. Isn't this what Charles Wesley would write? We didn't sing it in that. I was hoping we would sing it when we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's that one line that goes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity. That what people fail to see in Jesus Christ is all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his goodness. And the reason Paul says that people don't believe the gospel, it's not because there's a failure with the messenger, nor is it a failure with the message. That there is a God of this age, he is limited in terms of his time and his scope and his power, but he is blinding minds so that people do not see. And so Satan blinds People from seeing the true image of God. People who had been made in the image of God failed to see the true image of God. People who, like Adam, who had been made to reflect God's glory, now no longer reflect that glory. And as a result of no longer reflecting that glory, they no longer see. This had been Paul's experience when he was on the road to Damascus. He was called Saul. Probably his name was... Saul Paul, and so he probably went by Paul as his last name when he converted. But when Saul was on the road to Damascus, he was on a mission. He was a scholar extraordinaire. He knew his Bible inside and out. He knew the facts of the Old Testament. He had studied under some of the best PhDs of his day. He had no lack of knowledge, and yet when he heard of this movement, the movement of Christians that were coming along and proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer for the world, Paul couldn't accept that. And as he was trying to enforce the the curses for disobeying God's covenant upon these What he perceived were Christians who were disobedient. As he went about and was persecuting and killing Christians, suddenly there shone a holy light from heaven. And as he was on the road to Damascus, he was stopped in his tracks, and a voice from heaven came and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? and to which Paul could only respond by understanding it was the Lord Jesus himself. And what we're told in Acts is that Paul was suddenly unable to see. This light blinded him, and yet while his eyes were unable to see, his heart was able to see. That suddenly what he could see were things that he did not see before. It was that aha moment for Paul. But it wasn't just an aha moment walking from the kitchen to the living room and remembering what he had forgotten. It was this putting together all of his Bible, and understanding Jesus, and all that Jesus had done, and all of his glory, all of his goodness. Suddenly, though Paul could not see, he could see. Which is why Luke tells us, in Luke, when he writes in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, that as Saul was prayed for, suddenly scales fell from his eyes, and that he could see. Because it was not just the eyes of his head, but it was the eyes of his heart now that had been enlightened. And that Paul would understand this moment as central to all of his theology. That when Jesus would say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, he would understand and he would write in 1 Corinthians how we are a body and we are connected with Christ. And he would understand how belief is not just merely something that is rational, but it is something that is done by a creative work of God. That Paul understood this experience that he, a great sinner, a murderer, had received mercy. And so why doesn't Paul lose heart when, when he's accused of false things, when people hate him for talking about the gospel, when he comes with this message and it causes chaos wherever he goes? Why does Paul not lose heart? Why does he not lose heart with the Corinthians? Because if Paul, a murderer, a blasphemer, could could receive mercy and be shown grace, then couldn't he be one to have confidence that God would be pleased to work in other people's lives? You see, this was Paul's confidence And he can understand why people don't believe, which then we have to ask the question, well then, if this is why people don't believe the gospel, why do people believe the gospel? So second, why do people believe the gospel? The Damascus Road experience, it had changed Paul's life forever. It changed his perspective. It changed his understanding. It gave him this great insight Now his studies under the greatest minds of the Old Testament, all of the PhD studies that he did, were not for nothing. They were extremely helpful, but they were not helpful in the way that Paul had understood them to be helpful. Paul had thought that by knowing all these things, it gave him a righteous superiority, which he'll say in Philippians 3, it was all but dung, it was rubbish, it was trash, In comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And in knowing Jesus Christ, he couldn't see until something happened. As opposed to the God of this age, Paul has confidence in the Creator God. He says in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness... This is the God who is the God who creates. He's the God who creates every snowflake, every ray of sunshine, every blade of grass, every petal in a flower. He creates every morsel of food. He is the God who creates. And do you know what Paul says here? He has not stopped creating. Creation was not a one-time work that God did way back when. He wound up the universe and he just let it, lets it run. And he's got all the laws and organization that happens and he can just stand off at a distance. That's what deists believe. What the Christian believes is that God orchestrates and designs and creates every snowflake. I think it's G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, who says that God has a delight in that, that he says to every snowflake, do it again. And to every petal on a flower, do it again. And to every sunrise, do it again. Because what God is doing is he's creating. He has not stopped creating. And so the God who said, let there be light, as we said when we looked at Genesis 1, where does this light emanate from since the sun and the stars don't appear until day 4? Where does light emanate from in Genesis 1? It emanates from God Himself, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And so the God who creates is still the God who is doing a new creation work. He has this power to do this new creation work that is able to rescue sinners who are blasphemers, who persecute, who disobey, who rebel against God. And what he does is he speaks a sovereign word of grace. Let there be light. He, Jonathan Edwards says he, divi- he imparts by, a divine, by his own word a divine and supernatural light to the soul. That's how Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s would describe what God is doing. That he speaks a creative word and that creative word actually doesn't only create, it also produces a new creation. This is why Paul doesn't lose heart. It's because there's not a battle between the God of this age and the Creator God. It's that God is all powerful, and God will act as He determines to act. No one forces God to act in any way. He's he's absolutely free. And so He speaks His creative word to magnify His mercy and grace. What is He creating? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, what has he done? What has he created? Has shone in our hearts. This is what makes the work of the gospel superior to the work of the devil. The devil blinds minds. The gospel enlightens hearts. And the heart, if you, if you understand the, the idea of the heart, it's not just the seat of all your emotions The heart is your affections, it's your motivations, it's your desires, it's your mind. It's all of who you are. So that when the gospel comes, it's not just overcoming the blindness of the mind, it's overcoming the barrier of the will. It's overcoming the barrier to all unbelief. Because unbelief isn't just a rational problem, it's also often an affection problem, it's a problem of desire. And that God is overcoming these barriers, and this is what is called in theological terms, regeneration. It's the work of a new creation. To to regenerate something is to make it new. And this is what God is doing, is he is making all things new by his word. This is why when Paul talks about what it means to be a believer in 2 Corinthians 5, he'll say that we are new creations that the the world to come has already broken into this world. The God of this age is limited. But the God who is the creator is bringing the world to come already into this world. And the evidence that Paul believes, that, that shows that God is doing a new creation, is everyone who professes that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that means in this room... That all who have put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ are not part of this age, but of the age to come. Which means that we are seated in the heavenly places, that Christ is already dwelling in our hearts by faith. That what has happened is that into this world, that world has come. The church is the new society, in other words. The church is the demonstration of the new world. As imperfect as we are, as we live between this age and the age to come, as we struggle in our own bodies and in our own flesh with desires of this age, and we admit that we are weak and we are frail and that we are prone to temptation, there is also the age to come. And what is God doing by enlightening our hearts? Paul goes on to say he's shone in our hearts to do what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The image that was originally marred in Adam. Being made to be like God. Destroyed by sin and marred by sin. Is now overcome. So that we are not just image bearers of God. But as Christians you become an image bearer of Jesus Christ. Of the new creation. God is doing something fundamentally brand new. It's glorious. It's good. And what God's light does, do you notice what his light does? Is it brings not sight, it brings knowledge. It brings a knowledge of who God is in Jesus Christ, which means that belief is not merely rational. The belief isn't merely having facts line up in a head. It's that facts line up in a head and it moves the heart so that the heart desires what those facts are telling. And that God's working to bring about His glory. The problem with Moses and the glory that shone on his face is that it would come and it would go. But the glory that comes in Jesus Christ, does not come and go. And Paul is so confident of this because he says in chapter 3, verse 18, that the Spirit of the Lord, where He is, there is freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, what is He doing? Is He is transforming us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree of glory, which means that in a room like this, do you want to look around? Let's take a look. Do you see glory? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You see, what God does is he starts to reveal glory. And if people don't see glory, if what we see is the worst of each other, we're failing to understand what it means to be a new creation. If all we can do is have the gift of criticism, it's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the gift of the Spirit. Because what God enables us to do is to see glory in one another, to be generous to one another. And what this means practically is it means, first of all, there's a question for each of us. Has light shone into your heart so that you Understand, not merely in your mind, but in your heart, who Jesus is. God is going to work to overcome many sins. Because the reality is that I crucified the Lord Jesus. That I am a sinner. That I have done, I have done wrong. And the only hope that I have Is in Jesus. It's in confessing to him. I need you. I need you to change me. I'm desperately needy for you. You see in the new covenant. What Jesus comes and does is. The veil is removed. And when the veil is removed. The prophecy that Isaiah said. That there are going to be a people who walk in thick darkness. And dread and gloom. Isaiah 8. Which is what we looked at last week. But in the days of the darkness and dread and gloom, Isaiah says in chapter 9 that there is going to be a light that comes in. The people who once walked in darkness are going to behold a great light. Those who have been in the land of shadows, upon them a light has dawned. You see, the effect of what God does is is He illuminates. He shines. Has God shone into your heart to show you who Jesus Christ is? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that this is a room full of sinners? And in this room full of sinners, it's just merely us confessing. I'm a beggar, and I found bread, and I want to lead you to bread. And so... One of the practical things that this does for us then is it destroys all self-righteousness. It destroys any pride. It gives us a compassion upon sinners. It, It gives us an understanding that unless God would be gracious to me, where would I be? What hope would I have? I don't act with superiority because somehow I believe and somehow I'm mighty and great. Instead, I'm humbled by the fact that I believe. That God has been gracious to me when I didn't deserve mercy and grace. And when I didn't receive, when I did not deserve to receive mercy and grace, instead of pouring out his anger, which I deserved, God had mercy upon me, a sinner. And that I am in need of constant transformation from one degree of glory to another. And that's what God does in the gospel. Is he takes a broken person, a frail person, a sinful person like me. And God shows that the God of this age has no absolute authority in the age to come. None. Instead, what he is doing is he is overcoming our blindness by the one who speaks the divine word and imparts a supernatural light to the soul. What is veiled formerly is now seen. The second Adam has come, and he remakes us not in the image of the first Adam, but in the new Adam. And he is constantly working to remake us into that image. So why does Paul not lose heart? The God of this age is limited. He only blinds minds. He keeps people from seeing the knowledge of the glory of God and the image of Christ. But the God who created is still creating. And he is enlightening the heart. And by enlightening the heart, he he is imparting that supernatural light so that what we see is mercy and grace over and over and over. You see, God is still creating. Satan has been defeated. Blindness has been overcome. And creation is not destroyed, but it is remade. Grace does not destroy nature, as the church fathers would say. But it remakes it. Which is why we have compassion. Which is why we remind each other of these truths. Which is why when we stumble and fall, we keep getting up and we keep encouraging one another. Because we all have that, we have that need for the aha moment. The moment where God's divine and supernatural light is imparted to the soul so that we might believe. And when he does that, we hear a sovereign voice of grace that sounds from the sacred word, O you despairing sinners come. And trust upon the Lord. We ought to believe. And we ought to believe with hope. Because the God who spread out his arms over empty space said, let there be light. And he spread out his arms over empty hearts. And he said, let there be light. And into an empty and hopeless world, the Son of God was born. This is the reason for hope. This is the divine and supernatural light that we all need. Let's pray. Father, in this room, a room of this size, I'm sure that there are people... Who have not experienced that divine and supernatural light into their hearts and souls. There's also in a room of this size people who have struggled and fallen into sin. Lord, would you speak your word? Let there be light. Would you have mercy upon us, O God? Have mercy that you would wash away our sins, that you would make us clean and whole, that you would change us from one degree of glory to another. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If this message, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is what is going to transform people's lives, so that they would see that their sins can be forgiven, their transgressions covered. Then, Lord, would you send us, just like you sent Paul, to be the kind of people who speak the word of the gospel, the message of the hope of Jesus Christ, so that people would not only know that God loves them, but God has sent his Son to forgive them of sin and to make them whole. Send us out, Lord, Shine your light upon us. Let your glory radiate from us. You, say, you saw the world and said, it is good. And you are the God who sent your Son, for you are good. You're a wonderful maker. You are a wonderful Savior. That's why we stand and we sing and we worship you now.